Welcome, everyone, once again to the Spirit Soul Body podcast entitled Toward Wholeness. This is where we're hoping and attempting to give people clear steps that they might take toward wholeness in their lives as, as people seek to walk in Christ and be the presence of hope in the world. Many people are asking questions about how to do that. And I'm really thrilled with the guests that we have today on the podcast. Amy King, because of the work that she does. Uh, About uh, a year and a half ago or so, perhaps, a local news station here in Seattle produced a documentary entitled Seattle is Dying. And it was really an expose of the problems of homelessness and mental illness and uh, crime and social instability that affect not only Seattle, but frankly, many cities on the West Coast and many cities around the country in the United States. And the question on the table in that particular expose was, what should people be doing about it? And this question, of course, intersects with faith because a distorted view of the gospel says that faith is primarily about a change of destiny, getting people out of hell and into heaven. But in the meantime, here on earth, uh, simply seeking to live lives of quiet, private holiness Whereas Jesus actually says explicitly that faith is about being reconciled with God and filled with the life source of the entire universe so that we can become people empowered to bless and serve our broken world. Luke 4 is where Jesus says, I've come to release the captives and to bring freedom for the oppressed. And Jesus isn't speaking just metaphorically about captivity to sin. He's speaking about Captives being released, oppressed people being freed. And so one of the questions on the table in that documentary that was produced in Seattle is, how do people do that? I'm happy to introduce to you Amy King, who's the owner and CEO of Pallet Shelter, a Seattle-based social purpose corporation that's striving to improve people's lives through high-quality products that they build and uh, through the people that produce them. They're a second-chance-friendly company hiring and investing in people actively engaged in recovery and reintegration into mainstream life. She and her husband, Brady, started Square Pig Development in 2014, which led them to hire previously incarcerated individuals. And as they heard the stories and struggles of their employees, they became passionate about removing barriers to reentry. This is a huge issue in the United States. So they're seeking to provide an opportunity for individuals to transition into mainstream life out of incarceration. So in 2016, they founded Weld Seattle, whose mission is to equip impacted individuals with housing, employment, resources conducive to recovery and successful reintegration back into society. I'm thrilled to have you with us, Amy, today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share a little bit of the story of Weld. You bet. Thanks for having me, Richard. So can you uh, give us a little background about how such a work is born? You guys got married and are raising a family and doing kind of normal things, and then suddenly you're involved in a pretty profound and meaningful work, but that doesn't just uh, fall from the sky in a vacuum. Something happened to make this thing come into existence. Tell us a little bit of your story there. Yeah, so uh, my husband and I uh, lived in Seattle for most of our marriage, and we, uh, my husband is a general contractor and was building houses here prior to and during the recession of 2008. 
And during the time of the recession, um, our family actually went through a pretty significant time of brokenness and darkness and um, trouble, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, related to the businesses that we had, as many families did during that time, because it was just a difficult time. Personally, my husband and I, during that time, our marriage fell apart. There was just a lot of stuff going on personally for us and spiritually. And over a series of months and, and really over the series of a year, we were able to really dig deep into our own relationship and into our relationships with God individually and together and really found a place of wholeness and redemption in our marriage. Uh, we moved to Portland for a few years and sort of reset ourselves. And then a friend here locally reached out to us and said, hey, I want you guys to come back to Seattle and start building again. And we said, well, that's crazy. Why would we do that? We just overcame all of our demons and trouble from leaving that life. Why would we want to go back? And and over a period of time, we just really felt God calling us back, even though it seemed like a crazy choice to make. Um, and we followed that calling and returned. And uh, we're very lucky to move into our same house and, and back into the same life we had before, which was odd, but also a huge blessing for us. And as we started to build again, we found a massive labor shortage in the construction industry. We put up job postings for laborers and skilled craftsmen to come and join our team, and nobody applied. And we had a mutual friend who had started his own company out of necessity and didn't really want to run his company. And so he came to us and said, hey, could, could myself and the guys that work for me come and work for you guys? And we said, sure you know, not knowing anything about these guys other than they were great guys and we liked them and they were good workers. And over a period of time, as we got to know them better, we learned that they had criminal histories, all six of them, and pretty significant criminal histories. And my husband and I both had no experience with this area. Uh, we both were very privileged uh, growing up and, and protected from, you know, these kinds of things. And so we were very naive, very ignorant about the criminal justice system, about addiction, about recovery. And so we kind of just, in order to support our employees, we wanted to really lean in to understanding them. Uh, so we sat down with them, we asked them their story, and what we heard was just appalling to us, uh, horrifying to learn of the things that we as a society do to people. Um, some of those things were, were warranted, of course, their time in prison, they all would say they deserved and, and it was something that was needed for them. But it's what happens after that that was really hard for us to swallow as we heard more and more. So uh, we really dug into that and felt like, gee, we could really utilize this business that we've started to make a difference in our community in a really profound and purposeful way uh, that's driven by meeting the immediate needs of people for income and relationship and purpose and all of those kinds of things. And so that's how we got started uh, with Scorepeg, our construction company, and then everything else just kind of grew from there. And it's been a wild ride, to say the least. So a couple of things. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty amazing story. And I love how uh, there's kind of this unseen hand, this invisible force behind these moves that you've made. And this is often how the life for which we're created unfolds, it seems to me. I mean, we have our own agendas and we have our own plans and we have our own ideas. But I love that John 3 passage in the Bible where it says, the wind blows wherever it wants. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And it sounds like the things that God has led you to do have been very much Spirit-led in a sense, like this wind has just kind of 
showed up and blown you about. The other thing that is significant in what you're saying as I listen is uh, this distinction between retributive justice and restorative justice. I'm sure you've heard of it, but the the notion of retributive justice is like we're going to you know we're going to make you pay. We're going to make you pay for the crimes you've committed. Restorative justice is about uh, helping people move out from the choices that they've made and the mistakes that they've made into a space of wholeness. And so it's still justice and there's still a price to pay, but the goal is not punishment as much as restoration. And when I I listen to you, it sounds like many of your employees have been suffering under the cloud of retributive justice. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, the people that we work with, I mean, over the course of the last, you know, five years as we've been doing this work, we've encountered hundreds of people um, in King County, across King County that have released here. And they've come to us in one form or another through one of our companies, either for employment or for services. And and I can say confidently, a hundred percent of them have a very significant trauma experience, whether it was in childhood or recently. And then that trauma experience is exacerbated by the trauma that they experience in prison or in recovery or in homelessness out on the streets. I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand how traumatic those experiences are. And while we may as a society feel that that trauma experience is justified in the sense, as you mentioned, of justice, of saying, you know, well, you deserved this, you chose this. While that might be true to some extent that there needs to be consequences for actions, what we see is that punitive environment is so much more traumatic, excessively traumatic to the extent of breaking people down to the point of inability to recover and bounce back. And then and then you tack on top of that the barriers that people face inherently as they release from the criminal justice system. Things like, you know, now I have a criminal record, so I can't get a job. No one will rent a home to me, so I can't make money. I I don't have a community. Perhaps I'm alienated from my family or from my original, you know, my family of origin or my family of choice, either one. And they're just sort of out left on their own with no community, no resources, no ability to get the things that the rest of us would automatically get because we have jobs and homes and families and communities and churches and groups that we're embedded in that help us to survive. So we've not only have we caused them this trauma that's very significant, but then we've also perpetuated that trauma cycle by saying, well, you can never really recover from this. And that's what felt so, so very wrong to us. And when we look at our faith experience with God, we'd say, you know, God forgave us and allowed us to be reconciled to him. And so why, if we can be reconciled to Jesus for the, for the decisions, the sins that we've committed and the decisions that we've made, why do we enforce on people who've made decisions in our society and, and say, well, you can't be reconciled. I'm sorry. Whether it's, you know, whether we do that actively or not is, I think people are doing it without even realizing it. And I think most of society, including myself, I didn't realize we were doing this to people until we started doing what we're doing today and meeting people. That's amazing. So to work with someone who has come out of this environment that has been uh, so destructive, certainly along the way, you've learned a thousand lessons and your own worldview has changed in a short paragraph or so, can you kind of summarize the challenges that you faced on the front end? What are some of the challenges of the work? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of challenges to this work. But I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind is 
you know, keeping ourselves in check in terms of checking our own privilege and experience against our expectations for our people. So that that's the main thing that I face on a daily basis is it's hard to hold people accountable to things that they've never been taught, that have never been demonstrated for them. So I have to constantly remind myself the things that seem obvious, the things that we would consider, quote, common sense, or that, you know, I've growing up in a privileged environment, I've had access to education and job opportunities and, you know, communities of faith and groups that support me uh, and teach me things. And then I encounter people and say, well, how did you not know how to start a bank account? What do you mean you don't know how to open a bank account? Well, they never had an experience or a family or a community that taught them that. So I have to constantly check myself with that. The other challenge, of course, is for us specifically is the outside perception of the work that we do and the people that we do it with. So we get a lot of interesting pushback, but also a lot of great support. Um, and so one of the challenges is, is trying to educate the larger community about who these people are, where they came from, and what their needs are in such a way that helps other people to learn where there's a space for justice for them and for the people that we seek to serve, rather than sugarcoating things or making it easier for people to to understand. We want to give them the real story and sort of break down that human bias. And that's challenging in and of itself to get people to see things from a different perspective. You can totally see in your work the reality of how we tend to objectify people and label people. And then once we do that, uh, there's an immediately a barrier. It's a, there's a sense of I'm here and this other person is there. I've made these decisions. They've made those decisions. And it, it just seems uh, that as I look at your website, uh, wellseattle.org, I believe it is, as I look at your website and watch some of the story videos of transformation, you guys have done a marvelous job of breaking down that barrier and removing that tendency to objectify so that you, you begin to see every person as part of the human family made in God's image and deserving, in a sense, because of who God is, deserving of dignity and allowing their humanity to flourish. And I just love that. How have you seen that play out in terms of like what's been rewarding about the work for you? Yeah, it, it has been incredibly rewarding. And I thank you for saying that. I'm so thrilled that that's what you got from our website. That's fantastic. It is, we really do want to tell those stories of humanity and, and dignity and let people really see our people. I think the biggest reward for me has been, it's such a privilege to to journey alongside people as they grow and learn and re-engage in community and to watch the benefits of that for them, for their children, for their parents, for their family members and community members. I mean, it's just, it's so cool to see kids be reunited with parents that have purpose and meaning and, and see their own value again. And then the child then sees their value through the eyes of their parents. And it's, that's been for me, the most rewarding thing. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, we have a ton of amazing people in our life now that are like adopted kids to us that, you know, come and go from our home, that hold our children, that come and sit around our table for dinner. And they have amazing stories that are real and raw and beautiful and really demonstrate all of the glory that God brings through redemption. And they demonstrate it in very real and tangible ways. Um, and that is a privilege I can barely describe. It's, it's, the most rewarding part of what we do, for sure. 
I mean, without, uh, I mean, I recognize in the question I'm about to ask, there's a huge risk of stereotype and I don't, I don't mean to stereotype and put people in, in categories in a, in a sense, but as well, I'm mindful in my own circle that it's often been the case, not universally, but often been the case that the harder you fall, the more real your faith is on the other side of the fall. And I always use this paradigm when I preach in the church that I'm privileged to lead, that the trajectory of our lives has these three chapters that are repeated over and over again, order, disorder, reorder. You mentioned it in your own life with the economic downturn of 2008, how that plunged you guys into a, into a state of disorder. I mean, the people that you're investing in have experienced profound disorder. I'm assuming then that on the far side of that, there's often a profound reordering. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's we see that over and over and over again. And we also see, you know, in working with people coming from addiction and from trauma, you see that cycle sometimes repeat itself because they don't always have the tools and resources to bounce back from things that happen in life that those of us that haven't had that kind of disorder, that intensity of disorder, we might respond to trouble in a more understandable, quick resolution kind of way. They tend to relapse or, you know, have some sort of major fallout because they haven't been taught or they haven't experienced that reorder experience in a productive way. And so we see it time and again where, you know, it happens over and over. It's a cycle of life to some extent. But yes, 100% of our people have this very intense disorder experience. And then that reorder is can be very beautiful. Uh, not always, but many times is, is really beautiful in seeing them put the pieces together of their life and understand how their trauma experience informs who they are today and who they are in the world in terms of benefiting others. That is a really beautiful thing to watch. You know, one of the things I love about what you're doing, Amy, is I encounter many people who are, you know, frankly, disillusioned with faith, disillusioned with Christianity, rethinking their relationship to the church, this kind of thing. And often the reasons given is because it seems that churches fall into the trap of either privatizing the faith and making it just something about, you know, my own personal well-being and security or getting my ticket stamp so I get to go to heaven later. And uh, what you guys are doing offers like a more robust version of faith. Like when I look at what you're doing, I read it through the lens of what Jesus said in Luke 4, where he said, hey, I've come to set the captive free and uh, deliver those who are oppressed. And you guys are living into that. So I'm wondering how your faith has informed your work, both at the beginning and as you continue it in the ongoing fashion. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because that's definitely an experience that my husband and I had personally following, you know, the situation we went through in 2008 with our family and with our marriage, we also became disillusioned with the church and we felt like no one was there for us and we didn't know you know, what was happening with our faith. And over time, and a a whole series of events that included, you know, very intentional counseling and all kinds of things, we were able to sort of rethink that in in a way that made more sense to us personally and really applied to our lives. But it didn't really all come together until we started doing this work. So we really felt like, you know, God really redeemed our experience 
in giving us this opportunity to do this work with people. And we see that every day. And our faith, you know, we both grew up in, in very conservative Christian homes, going to church. I went to a private Christian school in the area here, and it just constantly surrounded by faith experiences that, as you mentioned, felt very privatized, like it was just meant for a certain group of people. I don't remember going to church as a child and seeing homeless people in the pews or people that were suffering. They might have been there, but I wasn't aware of them. It wasn't something that was readily uh, obvious to me. And so now when I think about the work that we do and the need that I see both in our city and across the country, I realize, you know, faith is not just going to church and sitting in a pew and being part of that community. It tr faith is about being a part of the larger global community and understanding how we as Christians carry that faith into the world in very tangible ways. So for us, that looks like giving someone a job and in turn that gives us the opportunity to build a relationship with them and help meet their immediate needs and maybe over time that morphs into a conversation about why we would give them that chance when most people wouldn't give them that chance. And that's an open opportunity for sharing of the gospel. But we don't come out of the gate with that. We just start by building relationship with people. And we say all the time that to us, our work is our church. We come to church every day and we do our job and we build relationship with people and we seek to help them find wholeness and, and redemption and recovery in their own lives. And just walking alongside them is our version of sharing our faith. And early, early on, when we first started doing this work, someone that we were working with, the gentleman that we first brought into our company, he brought us a verse and he had found his own faith and said, hey, I have this verse for you guys. And it's Isaiah 42, six through nine. And, and when he brought it to us, he, you know, I just bawled when he read it. And I said, that's our verse. That's about us. And I believe that God is calling us. And in turn, through that calling, he's going to provide what we need to do this work. And that's just exactly what's happened along the way. And, and I can't deny the fact that, you know, we believe in an all-knowing, all-loving God that wants to see people reconciled to him. And over time through this work, we have seen him do that over and over and over again. And that blessing has proven we're on the right track and we're doing the right thing. I got to ask you, uh, can you paraphrase Isaiah 42, six through nine yep. now? We all want to know what it is. Well, I actually wrote it down. So it's, I, the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That's incredible. I just picture uh, your, your work as this cup that gets filled with divine life to the point of overflowing so that now you're kind of spilling this blessing out into the world and it's, and it's beautiful. So thank you for that. I, I wonder, as we bring this thing to a close, people who are listening to this, your story is incredibly inspiring. And at the same time, many are busy with careers. Many are busy with parenting. Many are busy with both careers and parenting. And I'm wondering how people who aren't able to step into work at a level as profound as you have stepped in can take next steps toward being this kind of cup that's overflowing and blessing. What would you what would you counsel people who want to take next steps toward being people of hope? 
Yeah, I you know, listen, I get it. We have three companies and two kids and we're caught in the middle of it too. It can be very complicated. And, uh, you know, while it's true what you said, our cup is overflowing, sometimes our cup does feel like it's running dry. And so, you know, really, I would say people are busy and especially in this time with COVID and, and everything that's going on, people are overwhelmed and I get it, I we are too. I think there's a couple things, right? So a really practical way people can engage you know, if you're in a place of employment where you hire people, a really obvious way to engage is encourage your employer to consider a second chance employment model so that you have an opportunity to interact with people that are different than you at your place of employment. That's a place of ministry, just as much as the church is, just as much as this, your school that your children go to or whatever. So encouraging and inviting that diversity of experience, I think, within whatever sphere of influence you have, I think that's a really tangible way to start. The other thing I would say is, you know, personally is find a, a something that speaks to you, right? I don't, I don't know that we knew that this was, in fact, I can say for certain, we didn't know that this was where we were going to end up. We did not seek to do this work. It came to us, but what was, it was born out of a place of passion, of wanting to care for people who didn't have what we had. And we didn't really know what that looked like. It came to us. And so we really leaned into that passion of, you know, my husband's a builder. He's passionate about building. My experience was in healthcare. I'm passionate about whole person care and mental health. And so we sort of smashed those two things together and said, how do we do these two things that we're both separately passionate about in a way that is cohesive and provides a positive outcome, both for us as a family and for the people that we seek to serve. And it became very easy because we're passionate about the work. So we do it every day without any second thought or concern. And so I think that's, you know, find what you, what you love. If you love cooking, feed people. If you love doing social media stuff, go out there and use your platform to get people interested in learning about people that are different than them. You know, whatever that looks like for you, I think it's a more long lasting opportunity for people if they dig into what their skill set is and their experience and their passion. And then just, you know, try to engage someone that's different than you. Ask someone their story. There's always a story behind every person I've met behind bars, behind every person I've met on the streets of Seattle. Everybody has a story. And the bias will never go away that we have as a society if we don't start interacting with one another and listen to each other and try to understand what drove someone to the place they're in. So start with that, if nothing else. I think that's beautiful on both counts. The first uh, part of what you were saying reminds me of a quote by an author uh, that I'll never forget. He said, your calling is where the world's need and your deep gladness intersect. And so God has made each one of us with kind of unique bents. And as we live into those bents uh, that I think the Bible calls spiritual gifts, actually, as we live into that and use the gifts that God has given us, we do find joy in the work. It's not that it's uh, easy. It's still challenging, but there's joy in it. And then I just love what you said about listening to people's stories, because every story is a soul that is in the midst of formation. And souls are either being you know, calcified into something dark and fearful and anxious, or they're being softened into something hopeful. I'm reminded of Ezekiel, where God talks about the heart of stone and the heart of flesh. And the work that you are doing, Amy, God is using you guys to take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. And that's just, I mean, it just brings joy to my heart. So I want to thank you for the time that you've spent today sharing that story. 
And I encourage everyone who's listening to go online and look at the website. I, I'm correct, right? It's weldseattle.org. That's correct. Yeah. And on the on their website, there's several testimonies of people whose lives have been transformed through the work that Amy is doing. And there's steps that you could take uh, to, if you want to partner with the work that they're doing as well. So I want to thank you again, Amy, for your time. And uh, I look forward to seeing what happens in other people's lives as they listen to your story and take next steps toward wholeness in their own lives. One step of which, of course, is stepping out of the world to be a person of blessing. So thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the Toward Wholeness podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye.